guys! You asked for more equine and mixed animal episodes here at Vetfolio Voice, and we listened. For this episode, I was once again joined by the amazing Dr. Jamie Copper to discuss the dreaded colicking horse. Dr. Copper had a lot of insight into how to diagnose and work up a colic in the field, as well as when to recommend referral for your patient. And this episode tied in nicely to our previous episode on fluid therapy in horses, because of course fluids are hugely important in the colicking horse, so if you want to learn more about how to effectively get large volumes of fluids into your patients, be sure to check out that episode. Dr. Jamie Copper is an assistant professor at Iowa State University. She earned her DVM from Michigan State University in 2013, followed by a rotating large animal internship at the University of Pennsylvania's New Bolton Center, and both a residency in large animal internal medicine and emergency critical care at Michigan State University. I will tell you, it makes me cold just thinking about working outside with horses in the winter up there. Her clinical and research interests include improving the survival of horses with gastrointestinal disease and emergency and critical care of large animal species. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Well, I'm so excited to be joined again by Dr. Jamie Copper, and we're going to talk horses again. I'm so excited for these equine topics. We don't do them very often, and so happy to get some of these nuggets out there. Jamie, thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be here today and talk to you about one of my favorite topics. Yes. And because we don't do a ton of these episodes, we decided to go with a topic that probably a lot of people can relate to and have seen or will see at some point in their career, or at least, you know, maybe get that client that calls in with questions about what do I do, even if it's a small animal clinic. Um, And that's colic. We're just going to kind of cover the generals of colic here and I think it'll be really useful for people. I know I'm really excited to get into it. I'm excited and I hope it'll be useful too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's start really basic. Um, Can you review for us the definition of colic and just some good principles to keep in mind when we're seeing these patients? Yeah, absolutely. So, and it's actually a great question because colic literally just means abdominal pain. And so 90 plus percent of the time, it will be the GI tract. And that's what people associate it with, that colic means gastrointestinal, a problem with the gastrointestinal tract. But in reality, it's really anything that is within the abdomen. And it's a good thing to keep in mind for those cases that just aren't going as straightforward as you would expect them to, because a horse can't tell me the difference between my liver hurts and my GI tract hurts or my liver hurts and my kidney hurts. And so it's just generalized abdominal pain. I was going to say, I don't think I could tell you the difference of (laughs) my liver hurts through to my GI tract. Unless of course I was, you know, up to something the night before that may have involved a couple glasses of wine. And that might be a different story. (laughs) Good point. Very good point. I feel you there. So, you know, it seems like since, since the definition is just generalized abdominal pain, that kind of emphasizes the importance of a good physical exam, of course, for all cases, not just these colic cases, but all large animal and small animal cases. What are some of the major points we want to make sure that we hit on exam um, and check very thoroughly when we're, when we're working up a colic? Yeah, absolutely. So, 
For me, a good physical exam is systematic um, and I try and do it the same way every single time so that I don't get distracted by something that is abnormal and then potentially miss another abnormality. So I will oftentimes start up at the horse's head. This is, of course, assuming that the horse isn't trashing around on the ground. Um, and then we sometimes skip some of these more um, detailed things and kind of just get to the root of the problem. But assuming that the horse is able to stand there for me, I'll start at the horse's head, feel the temperature of their ears, um, because as they are losing volume or if they're hypovolemic or very vasoconstricted, their ears get cold and their feet will get cold. So they're just still extremities well. Of course, look in their eyes. And I'm also looking for facial trauma. So horses that have been really painful in the past will have beaten themselves up. And sometimes they are no longer painful because dying GI tract is very painful. Dead GI tract is not. So oh, goodness. the horse may now be standing there very quietly, but looking at their face, I can tell that they've been historically painful and maybe the owner might've missed that because it was overnight when normal people are sleeping and sure. <laughs> they're by themselves in the barn. Um, I'm checking their gums, looking at the color of their mucous membranes, looking at the capillary refill time for that. Um, and then feeling up just next to their sort of eye, um, you can get a transverse facial pulse there. So fe feeling for what is crudely this horse's blood pressure um, and even a pulse rate from there. I'll check jugular fill, make sure that we've got good patent jugular veins on either side. I'm probably going to want to give this horse some medication. So Good to check for a vein also gives me an idea about volume status. And then we'll listen to the heart and thorax, get a heart rate, make sure that we don't hear anything abnormal there as well. Um, and then head into the over to the abdomen, check for gastrointestinal sounds or borborygmi, and then feel for digital pulses, temperature of those distal limbs, and then get, um, and then we'll move on to their legs and we'll check for their digital pulses, evidence of signs of laminitis and things like that. Check the temperature of their distal limbs and then get a rectal temperature as well. Make sure that they don't have a fever or anything like that. And those are some of the highlights that I try and make sure that I get on every single exam and, and colic exam. You know, kind of going back, I'm reaching way back. It's been a long time since I've worked uh, worked up a colic. Um, but some of the things that I remember looking for, like when checking mucous membranes, they're the toxic line. And then you were talking about um, listening to the heart, making sure there's no abnormalities there. And there can be some pretty significant correlations with heart rate as well. Is that right? Absolutely. You're right on. You Yay. remember a lot. <laughs> I'm proud of you. Yeah. So mucous membranes, things we're looking for from a color standpoint, like you mentioned, toxic line is when they're the sort of on the edge of the teeth um, where the teeth and the gums meet, it turns kind of a purple or a blue color. Um, and we worry about those horses being endotoxic or gram-negative sepsis. Looking for that capillary refill time, or are they overall just really bright um, and inflamed? And then from a heart um, auscultation standpoint, as far as heart rate goes, although I do believe in a really careful physical exam and making sure that you don't miss anything, if a horse has a heart rate greater than 60, I will stop my exam at that point to pass a nasogastric tube. Because unfortunately, horses cannot vomit, or maybe fortunately, depending on how you look at it. But 
we worry that if their heart rate is greater than 60, one potential reason for that is that their stomach is getting really distended if they have a proximal um, gastrointestinal obstruction. And if we don't get a nasogastric tube passed in time, they could rupture their stomachs. And I'd hate to have them doing that while I'm checking digital pulses and things like that. So I'll pause, pass a nasogastric tube, see if I get any net reflux. And then once I either get the stomach decompressed or check it and find out that there isn't any start from there and complete the rest of my exam. Okay. And you're talking about you like full stop your physical exam. I mean, is there, would you ever think like maybe this heart rate is greater than 60 for a different reason that's, that's not colic or is that like pretty universally like, no, I'm going to pass this nasogastric tube. Yeah. Great question. There's a lot of other reasons their heart rate could be greater than 60. Unfortunately with my exam, um, I can't tell what that reason is. Um, and so short of pulling out an ultrasound or getting some blood work or something like that, which I don't always have the capabilities of doing out in the field, I'll still just stop, pass the tube, make sure that there isn't any net reflux and then go on from there. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then what about a rectal exam in these cases? Great question. So um, I certainly think that they are a key part of a colic workup. I won't, I, what I don't want people to do though, is get scared of if they can't do one for whatever reason to feel like they're performing a subpar exam, Um, because there's a lot of reasons out in the field, you may not feel comfortable doing a rectal. I'm lucky. I have trained people to hold horses for me in the hospital. I have stocks to do them in. And so of course, if you feel like it's unsafe, it is totally okay not to do one in the field, but that can also be a really helpful part of your colic exam. I tell people not to get focused on figuring out exactly what is wrong in there, because the truth of the matter is we don't really know unless we look them up, unless we open them up to find out but I try and answer big picture questions. So do I think that this is a large intestinal problem or do I think this is a small intestinal problem? Um, So from a large intestine standpoint, can I feel a big impaction, um, fecal impaction in the pelvic flexure, which is one of the two most common places they'll get impactions and it's right in the pelvic, um, sort of back pelvic area. So I can feel that pretty readily. Do I feel any gas distended colon that would suggest that it's out of place and that there is a displacement? And do I feel any distended small intestine, um, which basically feel like those balloons that get blown up to make animals? um, And it feels exactly like that. And then I always try and remind myself and I will remind owners as well that um, even though I have fairly long arms, I can only feel about one third of or 30% of the horse's abdomen. And so just because I don't feel anything doesn't mean that there's not something going on more cranial in that abdomen, but at least it's a fairly good sign if I can't feel anything that's abnormal distally. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. And so, you know, that's a lot of the basics of a good physical exam. As far as just a colic workup in general, is that the majority of it is just, you know, like a good physical getting a nasogastric tube passed to see if there's any net reflex? Are there any other components of making sure we're doing a good workup on these horses that we should keep in mind? Yeah, absolutely. I think the other one that we tend to overlook a lot and I do as well is a good history. Um, because colic means different things to different people. So the owner will call you out and say that their horse is colicking, 
but sometimes when I quiz them a little bit more, I find out different information, or maybe we just have a mismatch of what colic means. So maybe that means that the horse just hasn't eaten for the last day or so, or didn't finish its breakfast. Maybe it's more classic signs like the horse is down and rolling or, or pawing and things like that. Other things that we think of that can be helpful for a colic exam, but don't need to be done in every circumstance includes an ultrasound of the abdomen. So trying to get a better view of things that I may not be able to feel on rectal palpation, some blood work. There's a lot of, like we talked about, a lot of lookalikes for um, gastrointestinal pain in the horse. And then if needed, an abdominocentesis, which can also readily be performed in the field um, as well. I love that you brought up history because I think everything we're talking about here, of course, we're talking about it in the vein of equine medicine and colic, but the same principles apply across the board in small animal and large animal medicine. And you took me back to vet school there for a minute because I'm remembering um, Dr. Hill. I don't think he listens to this podcast, but <laughs> if somebody does and they bring it back to him, it's it's good things. But it was it was I was very first on clinics, and I came back with a history from the owner, and I said, yeah. And then he had pancreatitis, you know, such and such, you know, months ago, years ago, whatever it was. And he was like, well, how do you know the dog had pancreatitis? And I was like, because the owner told me that he had pancreatitis. He's like, well, how does the owner know? I was like, I don't know. And he's like, well, you don't know then that the dog had pancreatitis. So, you know, like you said, a good history because sometimes, you know, if if you just listen to, well, my horse is colicking, then you, know, you might get that tunnel vision and miss something else. So I love that you brought up that good history because, man, my very first day on clinics, that has stuck with me for a decade. <laughs> Absolutely. And my favorite question to ask, one of my favorite questions to ask owners is when was the last time your horse was normal? Um, because we don't, most people at least don't sleep with their horses like we do with dogs and whatnot. And so oftentimes a client will say, my horse has been colicking since this morning, AKA when they went out to feed it in the morning or when the barn went out to feed it. And when I follow up and say, so when was the last time, you know, the horse was normal, they may tell me 5 PM yesterday. And now I know that there might be a bigger window of time that this horse wasn't normal for, because it very well may have started colicking overnight. Um, and just no one was there to know. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That making sure that you have that in mind and, you know, along those same lines of making sure we have a good history so we can try to figure out what's causing this. I know, you know, I'm thinking about here in Florida, we have some kind of specific causes that we see commonly, um, different types of parasites, round bales of coastal hay. That's probably universal. That's probably not Florida. Um, we just have a lot of parasites. <laughs> but can you uh, can you give us an overview of what would be on your top differentials for the cause of this colic? What are the more common reasons you see horses colic? Yeah, those are great questions. So from a Florida or a geographic standpoint, some of the unique things that we see, um, and as you, as you mentioned, that coastal Bermuda hay. So um, Georgia, Florida, some other areas, North Carolina, I think we'll see those. Um, and that's due to an ileal impaction. The ileum is kind of a cranky place of the small intestine, but very important. And so those horses oftentimes will on rectal palpation have distended small intestine and they'll be refluxing when you pass a nasogastric tube because fluid can't run downhill into the cecum like it should. Um, sand colic is another one, depending on where you live. So unfortunately, some horses are not very discriminant eaters as they're out there in the pasture trying to pull up grass or weeds. 
um, and will get an accumulation of sand in their colon, which can get sort of plugged up or stopped up as it tries to move through the, the GI tract. And some of those horses, um, you can actually, if you auscultate them on the bottom part of their abdomen, it sounds like a beach. It's actually very relaxing oh for a few seconds <laughs> until like, you I'm realize what you're here. dealing with. Yeah. Waves oh. on a beach, just like when you listen to those conch shells. So, oh my goodness. Um, and then other geographic areas have issues with enteroliths. So rock, basically rocks that form in their GI tract. California is a big problem with that. Um, and those we die, one of the few things that and sand um, that we can use radiographs of the abdomen to diagnose. So I'm always jealous of my small animal colleagues that can take radiographs and they can tell you all about the liver and the kidney and the spleen. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It's a washout. I can tell you, do they have a mineral opacity or no in their abdomen? And that's, that's about it for me. I would say it's a double-edged sword, though, because sometimes it's like, you know, you see something like, is it something? Is it not? And, you know, just not having the information, then you're, you know, you just operate differently. It's, I would say, yes, in general, I'm happy that we can take radiographs, but there are some times where I'm like, I don't know if I see this or not. That's a good point. For me, it's very black and white. There's something big and, um, and white in the abdomen or there's not. So rock or no rock. <laughs> exactly. Rock or no <laughs> rock. Um, from a parasite standpoint, some of the common things we think about are in weanlings um, and sort of older foals um, would be an ascarid impaction. So these are usually horses that either um, haven't been dewormed regularly or the farm has a high um, rate of resistance on it. And so um, the foal does finally get dewormed or gets dewormed with something that's effective, kills all of the ascarids and then or paralyzes them. And then they move downhill and oftentimes get stuck in the small intestine. Um, and those animals, which sometimes we can see them on ultrasound, which is really cool. These little oh, wiggly aliens in the GI tract. <laughs> Uh, it's a good find. Um, and then tapeworms. So um, horses get anaplocephala, perfoliata, and in, again, usually younger horses, but those can cause some really nasty colic, cecocolic and a susceptions. So we think it's due to dysmotility associated with those parasites. They like to hang out at the ileocecocolic um, area. And then sometimes the colon will inasuscept back into the cecum. Um, and those are tricky ones. Those horses, unfortunately, don't tend to do well. So it's a good sort of chat with clients why it's worth it to make sure that you have a good anti-helminthic or deworming program because you might get away with it a lot of the time. But man, you get one horse that needs colic surgery and you could have bought yourself a lot of fecal floats um, or deworming medications for that. So other than that, common things we see. So geriatric horses or older horses. Um, that have distended small intestine or reflux, we worry about strangulating lipomas. So they get um, fatty tumors, balls of fat, basically, that hang on a pedunculated stalk. And then just sadly, one day, bad luck, it does the loop-de-loo and cuts off blood supply as it wraps around um, piece of intestine. And then brood mares, um, post foaling, we think because suddenly there's all this extra room in their GI tract, the colon gets a little crazy and goes wandering. Um, they're predisposed to large colon volvuli or 360 degree um, displacement or flip of the colon. So 
Other common things we can see in any horse are displacement. So again, the colon goes wandering. Maybe it doesn't do a full 360, but it kind of gets uh, sort of a 180 um, wander with it. Large colon impactions, small colon impactions. The horse can think of all sorts of creative ways. To <laughs> they really can. Them, sadly. Yeah. So, and again, I think that, you know, the important thing isn't necessarily to figure out exactly what is this displacement on my rectal but it is just simply it, the colon is gas descended. It doesn't feel like it's where it should be. And then at the end of the day, the most important thing is I'm decision making decisions for this patient is, are they responding to pain medication? Because if they're not, no matter what their problem is, if I can't keep them comfortable, I can't treat them medically. Right. Absolutely. At, at least, you know, it would pose a great risk because the more uncomfortable they get, the more dangerous the situation's going to get. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you're out on the field, you can't be coming out to the farm every hour to redose that horse with pain medication. Um, and so those are horses, if I can't keep the horse comfortable, both for safety reasons, as well as, you know, sort of for that horse is talking to that owner about referral, whether that means that that horse needs exploratory surgery or can be medically managed, but just, again, you don't have the time to be out there every hour. So um, in a hospital setting where it's more feasible to do those things. So we talked about our initial good physical exam, kind of our workup plans, some presumptive diagnoses that may be common to our area or may just be more general. What are we talking about in terms of treatment? Of course, like you said, we got to get these guys comfortable because there's no way we can treat them if we can't get them comfortable. But what other things, one, how do we get them comfortable? And then what other things do we keep in mind? Yeah, absolutely. So we have some options for keeping them comfortable. Probably the most tried and true and the one that we're most used to is banamine or flunix and megalamine. Um, but any non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug can be used. So phenylbutazone can also be used as well as furacoxib, which the equine version of that is Equiox. In horses that have colic, if possible, I like to go IV with it because I don't know that their GI tract works. And so if I give it orally, not only is there a delay in them getting that medication, but if they're not able to absorb it and move it out of their stomach, then I may not get the positive effects for it. As one just quick tidbit and reminder with um, flunix and megalamine or banamine, because a lot of owners have these medications through various routes on farm. And they will give uh, it like one dose every hour for like eight hours. And you're exactly. like, no, don't do that. It's like, ask the client, what what has this horse received is, is usually what I ask rather than has this horse received anything. Um, it's just what has it received. And then um, if they have some banamine and I want them to give it to the horse before I get there, maybe there's going to be a delay until I can get to that farm um, or the horse is just really painful and I want to get it some relief while I'm on my way there, is that injectable banamine really shouldn't be given intramuscularly. Ironically, it's labeled for that. So it says you can do that on the label, but it's associated with an increased risk for clostridial myonecrosis or basically a really bad clostridial infection of the muscle. And so, although it certainly doesn't happen all the time, when it happens, you really wish you hadn't have done it or that your client hadn't have done it. Um, and what you can do is give that injectable medication orally. So you can have the client squirt some of the injectable medication in that horse's mouth and they absorb about 60 to 80% of it. So much safer route, um, for a client as opposed to giving it intramuscularly, but 
side sort of sidebar there. That's an important (laughs) sidebar. I'm glad you brought that up. Is that just due to the pH of the banamine? Yeah, you know, we don't know why any injection puts a horse, any horse can get clostridial necrosis from any injection, including vaccines, um, but it's more common with banamine. And we think that because of the pH of it, and just because it's really caustic and irritating to the muscle, it sets up a nice little anaerobic environment. And horses carry these clostridial spores in their muscles. Um, and so you inject them even though it's done cleanly and well, um, but it's just the right perfect environment when there happens to be a spore there waiting for it. So, um, but again, sort of an NSAID is my go-to. And then if I'm looking for something else on top of that, I'm oftentimes looking at um, either an opioid like butorphanol um, or sedation like xylazine or detomidine, which also has analgesic properties to it. So, um, xylazine will last for about 15 to 20 minutes. So I'll oftentimes give a dose of xylazine at the same time as my dose of banamine because it has a quicker onset and action. And so it provides that horse with some, some de- sedation and analgesia while that banamine is getting on board and taking effect. And then it's gone pretty quickly. So I can see if that banamine is providing comfort for that horse. Um, and then detomidine and butorphanol have a longer action. So we're you hopefully getting a couple hours from them. Um, and so if that xylazine and banamine didn't cut it, then I may add some detomidine onto that horse or some butorphanol um, for that. Okay. I, I way back in my brain remember giving those drugs. And I remember there were some studies on like morphine versus butorphanol in horses because it, from a small animal perspective, we're like butorphanol, is it really doing anything for them? And actually, if I'm remembering correctly in horses, it really does. It really does. Um, I think what's always shocking to me is that we probably underdose a lot of horses with butorphanol. So, um, Oftentimes we're looking, if if we're talking about like a 500 kilogram horse, we're talking about a dose of about five to 10 milligrams. But if you read the label, the actual dose is usually about 50 milligrams. And so I rarely go up that high, but I do keep that in the back of my mind that that is actually the labeled dose for it. Um, What I like also about butorphanol, if I'm going to rectal horse. And oftentimes I'm sedating them for that, for my safety is that unlike xylazine, butorphanol really helps them plant their feet on the ground. So sometimes horses that are sedated with xylazine get what we call the xylamines um, and, or the xylazine rage, and they will look really sedate and then suddenly just strike and kick you or reach out to bite you. Um, and we tend to let our guard down around sedated horses, unfortunately. So we probably also put ourselves in a bad place, but be adding butorphanol to it tends to keep their feet on the ground and keep me safer. Yeah. And we see that with alpha twos and small animal too, where they'll be really sedated and, you know, you go to pick them up and you're, oh, this dog is flat out. I can go pick them up and they'll reach up and they'll bite you and fall right back asleep. It's the same way in horses. I learned yeah. something new every day. I didn't know that about Same animals. here. I, I Either I didn't know about the banamine myositis or I had completely forgotten about it. <laughs> oh, goodness. But yeah, so that's our analge- my analgesia plan for a lot of these horses. And again, if they're not responding to that, if they're continuing to remain uncomfortable um, and really showing violent signs of colic, then I'm talking to that owner about referral or even if 
euthanasia if that horse is if referrals on an option and they're continuing to get painful after multiple rounds of sedation. Other mainstays for colic treatment um, is removing feed. So I always want the horses not to be eating um, during those colic until we are sort of sure that they're going to head in the right direction, whatever their cause was. Because if they do have an impaction or a displacement, the last thing I want to do is pack more feed um, into that and cause a bigger problem for myself. So we want to see some poop files. We want to see them um, not showing signs of pain and then fluids. So getting some fluids into them because they're probably not drinking and that's going to exacerbate um, their colic if predisposes them to impactions and things like that. And then also improves GI motility when you give it um, to them through a nasogastric tube. And I think we had a podcast on, on fluids as our last one. Yes. So yeah, it would be a good time to check that out too. Absolutely. Yeah. There was some really interesting stuff on that podcast. Um, thinking about like the rectal fluid therapy and stuff like that. There's some ways to get a lot of fluids into these patients. Yeah. And I think rectal fluids are a great way to go. Nasogastric fluids are a great way to go. IV is just not always practical on the farm because again, you've got places to be, you've got things to do. So you don't always have time to sit there and watch the IV fluids go in. So um, as long as they don't have any net reflux, which would tell me whatever I give them orally wouldn't go where it needs to go. I can get, you know, six, eight liters into a horse in an hour, less than an hour. So it's a good way to go with those fluids. Absolutely. Well, you touched briefly earlier on surgical cases. At what point do you know, like, this is a referral case? This is probably a surgical problem. Yeah, great question. So at the end of the day, pain that doesn't respond to analgesia, those are horses that I would get shipped off. So um, again, you can't be out at the farm every hour. And if they're that painful, there's probably something big and bad wrong with them. So if they're not responding to banamine, um, they're not responding to one or two rounds of sedation, then it's probably time to talk about sending them off. Um, some other things that you can do on the farm. So if I see, if I feel distended small intestine on my rectal palpation, or if I'm going to ultrasound and see that, that's another horse that I want to get referred because they're going to need a lot of fluids. Um, and I won't be able to do that fluid therapy through a nasogastric tube. I'm going to be stuck with IV fluids through that because in addition to their maintenance, I have to replace every liter of fluid that comes out of them. Um, and so horses, it's not uncommon for them to reflux eight to 10 liters and in one single go. And so now I'm 10 liters behind plus anything um, that's ongoing. And a lot of those do tend to be surgical due to strangulating lesions of the small intestine. So those are also horses that I'm looking to refer. Um, and then if you wanted to do an abdominocentesis on the farm, anything that looks abnormal that you get from that fluid is a horse that I would refer. Um, and my favorite analogy to that is that nice normal peritoneal fluid should look like a fine white wine. Um, and so a nice, clear, slightly yellow color that you can look through. Anything else that is pink or red or orange juice looking, those are more complicated horses that will probably struggle to treat on the farm and many of which need surgery. And with that, you're talking about doing an abdominocentesis and, and that fluid should look like a fine white wine. It should. Yep. Nice white love wine. love that. <laughs> My mentor used to say it, but with a British accent. So it sounds better than when I say it, but I love that. <laughs> Clients tend like, to know. <laughs> tell me again what it should look like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's great. 
Um, so you've mentioned ultrasound a couple of times. We know this is a modality that's being utilized more and more, certainly on the small animal side, um, but on the large animal side as well. Can you elaborate a little bit more on the role of ultrasound when we're working up a colic? Yeah, absolutely. So ultrasound can be a great tool. And, you know, there's a lot of different probes out there. There's a lot of these handheld devices now that are making it easier and easier for ambulatory practitioners to have and use ultrasound. And with some of our sort of fast exams, um, we can also get away with using a rectal probe to answer a number of questions on these horses. So what we're looking for with these exams is to answer big questions. So I'm not going to do um, for my acute assessment out on the farm in most cases, a thorough exam where I'm going rib space by rib space and looking at each and everything in the abdomen. But I'm trying to ask myself, does this horse have a big, bad problem um, and one that may potentially need surgery? So there's a few places that we recommend checking. So one is actually the craniovental thorax um, looking for free fluid in the chest. And the reason for that is that Again, horses can't always tell me that my chest hurts versus my abdomen hurts and pleural pneumonia horses can, or horses with pleural pneumonia can look like horses with colic. They're not eating, they're acting a little painful. Um, and so if it is not in the abdomen, we want to rule that out really quickly or sort of retrain our, our thoughts on a completely different part of the horse. So we'll check the cranial ventral thorax. I will check on the bottom of the horse's abdomen or their ventral midline, looking for an increase in free peritoneal fluid. So lots of hypoechoic fluid that's in their abdomen or swirling fluid or just any fluid in general. I'm going to check back in the horse's inguinal area because if they have distended small intestine, that tends to be where we pick it up. Um, and because as it gets heavy and full of fluid, it sinks down in that inguinal area. I'm going to check up on the left paralumbar fossa space um, because I should find the left kidney there. Um, and there is a certain type of colic in horses called a nephrosplenic entrapment, where for reasons I cannot explain to you, the horse's colon thinks it's a good idea to get stuck up between the spleen and the kidney and the nephrosplenic space. And when that happens, I can't see the kidney because the ultrasound waves can't penetrate through air that's in the, the GI tract that's up there. I'm gonna check the size of the stomach and look at the stomach. So stomach um, should not extend past the 14th intercostal space and should have a gas cap in it. So if I see it extending back farther or that it's fluid filled, I know that that horse's stomach is probably enlarged. And if I don't already have a nasogastric tube in that horse, I should stop and place one. And then I'm going to come over to the right side of the horse um, and check sort of just on the sort of mid abdomen of it, looking for the colon. Um, and what I don't want to see on that side is a big, thick colon wall, which makes us worried about a large colon volvulus, um, particularly in a really painful horse, because with that 360 degree um, twist, we can't get venous uh, return out of the colon. And so it starts to get really big and edematous. And those are the big questions that I'm looking to answer on ultrasound. I can't tell you if the horse has an impaction or not, um, other than whether or not the horse has a nephrosplenic entrapment or a volvulus. I can't otherwise make a lot of assumptions based on position of the colon um, with that. Um, so there are some things we can't answer, but it can help answer big big questions. 
Do you feel like if someone is a mobile practitioner and they don't have an ultrasound, can they still do a good workup on these colic patients? Absolutely. And in fact, I don't think that ultrasound is needed for 90% of colic workups on first on primary um, assessment of them. So the horses that I'm looking at ultrasounding are either ones that aren't responding to, to treatment or if it's a horse that I really think has a strangulating lesion. Um, so if I felt distended amotile small intestine on, um, on rectal, I already know that it has that, but sometimes it's helpful for this, the client to see that on ultrasound as opposed to just trusting what I'm telling them. Um, and then horses that aren't following the book. So it really didn't seem like any, I found anything that bad on the rest of my assessment, but yet it's just not moving along and not responding the way I think that it should. But I don't think that ultrasound is required or necessary in the majority of cases. Okay. Okay. That's good news that, you know, definitely nice to have. It can give you a lot of information. I could see that being useful for the owner. Like if you told me I had to haul my horse in and do colic surgery, it'd be nice to see that with my own eyes. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But that, you know, we can still work up and treat many of these horses adequately, even if we don't have ultrasound. Absolutely. Okay. Fun story time. Can you tell us, do you have like a crazy story where you were like, this is the wildest colic and, you know, they hopefully recovered um, that that you can share with us? Yeah, I do actually have one. Um, I was trying to think about what would be the best one to share, but I do think that um, it's a humbling case. So this horse came in um, and I was a resident at the time and was just severely, severely painful. So throwing itself on the ground, I could not keep it on its feet. And so very quickly had the conversation with the owners about surgery, because if I can't even keep your horse standing, it's really hard for us to treat your horse. And they said, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. We will do surgery, no problem. Um, And then I told them how much money surgery would cost and that we would need a deposit and absolutely no problem, no problem. Surgeon comes in, call the surgeon in. Um, And because the horse had been sort of so trashing around on the ground, we hadn't, um, I hadn't had a chance to take them up to get the deposit yet. So the surgeon went to take them up and it turns out they really only had $5, five, five dollars, $5. I know how much colic surgery costs and that didn't get them. That's just, you know, in case anyone's wondering out there that that didn't cover the bill. My exam has already been more than $5. So yes, I would hope so. The surgeon comes back and kind of gives me the look. I'm oh like, no. Oh no. <laughs> So, you know, what are we going to do? I still, knowing what I know now, would still have recommended that horse go to surgery. But we said, okay, let's give it a try. Surgery is not an option anymore because we can't take your horse to colic surgery for $5. Um, Unfortunately. But you are through the doors. We've already spent more than $5. So let's see what we can do for you tonight. So ended up sedating that horse really heavily. So gave it about 10 milligrams of detomidine IV and 10 milligrams of detomidine intramuscularly with another 10 milligrams of butorphanol IV and 10 intramuscularly along with thanamine IV um, and then trocarized it. So it had a really big gas distended large colon that was displaced. We were worried it had already twisted 360 degrees, which would all, which would require surgery, um, but was able to use an IV catheter 
stick it through the horse's flanks, um, get it into the gas-filled GI tract, release gas from it. Um, and you could literally see the horse deflating as we were doing this, crossed our fingers, kept waiting to get called back by the nurses to say this horse is you know, back where it started again. Horse never looked back. So discharged the next day to its owners. And so what I remember sort of with that case is that um, dead is dead and you can't undo dead. So it wouldn't have been wrong to euthanize that horse, but the owners wanted to try and we were honest with them, but I can't always predict the future. And in that case, it worked really well and it ended up saving that horse's life. That's, I love that you brought up that case because um, my my crazy colic case is actually very similar. It was a little mini and um, same thing, like couldn't keep her comfortable. Surgery wasn't an option. And I remember I was working with, with another vet. I think I was still a student at the time. And um, she said, you know, I have trochorized these. And I was like, really? Like, and it, it had to have been like almost midnight at this point. And you know, we try, felt like we tried everything. Nothing was working. Same thing. Like we deflated this little mini horse and she did great. Like the next day we went and rechecked her and she was just trotting around like nothing even happened. So I think that's a really good reminder that, you know, euthanasia is, is a permanent decision. And while certainly that's appropriate in many cases, um, and, and in both of these cases would have been appropriate that, you know, sometimes the, the crazy things work. Exactly. Sometimes we win. So yeah, I try and always be honest with clients, tell them, of course, you know, based on the information I have, how I think things will turn out with them. But when they want to try, I am game. And what I try and set up with them, though, is, you know, let's talk about together what what is our stopping point going to be? Because it's really easy to keep saying just one more round of sedation, one more round of sedation. And then suddenly we're we're six rounds in and you know, the horse is no better and and probably we've prolonged the inevitable. So my general rule of thumb is two to three rounds of sedation. And if the horse hasn't responded and is throwing itself on the ground, then it's probably time to talk about referral or euthanasia. But there are some cool things like trocherization that we can do and be really successful with sometimes. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really important clinical reminder, something we should all keep in mind of talking to the owners about that endpoint because, it, it, that win also can be a little bit addicting. Um, we're like, but sometimes we get th- this win and, you know, even as veterinarians when, you know, we know when to stop, but it's, it's hard to do, especially if you've gotten some of those wins. So making sure that with a clear head, you're having that conversation. So you're not putting this animal through any undue pain or stress. Absolutely. And we, they can always change their minds if you reach that, you know, agreed upon three rounds, but it's at least forcing us to have that conversation that this is where we said we would stop. Um, and are we, are we happy? Are we good about that decision? Um, I guess not happy, but are we comfortable with that decision? Um, and if not, we can go once more, but at least it's forcing us to kind of, to have that critical conversation. Right, right. Kind of that checkpoint to say, are we, are we really still, are we really doing no harm anymore? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been wonderful. You, as, as a surprise to no one, we knew this was going to be great. And it's always great talking to you, Jamie. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, anything you want to share with, with everybody out there? 
No, thank you so much for having me. And um, I would say go treat those colics, go work up those colics, um, go forth with confidence and remember that the very best thing in your toolbox is your history and your physical exam. And so if you don't feel comfortable with rectal palpations, ultrasound, et cetera, don't let that stop you because the best thing and most important thing you can do is a really solid physical exam. So many amazing clinical clinical pearls in this episode. I love it. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you. Dr. Copper, wonderful to talk to you as always. Thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you to all of you out there for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.